This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, coming up, Frank Elbow. Uh, was featured on the code-breaking, or featured as the uh, the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code. And uh, he is an architectural historian, and we'll touch on the Masonic symbology encoded in uh, places like the, uh, the Manitoba legislature. Uh, but he has this beautiful, beautiful new book out. Let me hold that up for the uh, those following us on the YouTube live stream. Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. Now, Astana is not, uh, you know, some mythical, well, it is mythical, but it's real, too. It's, the act, it's uh, this gleaming, modern capital city of Kazakhstan. And um, without a doubt, the world's weirdest capital city. Uh, we're going to find out all about the architecture in Astana. And um, we'll also learn about the Astana Challenge. If you solve the puzzle of the hidden messages in this book, you could win a luxury vacation to what Mr. Albo is calling the Illuminati capital of the world. Astana, the Illuminati capital of the world. Well, he'll uh, tell us more in, uh, in mere moments. Coming up in hour two of this transmission, our good friend Dr. Cass Ingram. Here's his uh, latest. Well, this is dialing back to 2000, but this one's revised and, and uh, expanded. Uh, the cure is in the cupboard. And, uh, you know, we are in the throes of what some uh, experts are saying could be the worst flu season ever. They're saying this, uh, this strain of the flu is uh, far worse than the swine flu. The H, we have, what is it, the H3N2. Worse than the swine flu. And... Um, so just in time for that, the expanded version. The cure is in the cupboard. And what is the cure, you ask? Well, it's the most ancient medicine of all. It's mentioned in the good Bible. Oregano oil. That's right. So Dr. Cassingram will be along to tell us about that. First, let me introduce the boys in the band. 
On the other side of the glass, on the Flying V Gibson guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson. How are you, my fine rockabilly friend? Uh, here in studio, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, my idiosyncratic, cryptic, inscrutable story producer, Albert Vinzel. Uh, and finally, on the Hammond B3 YouTube, or sorry, on the Hammond B3, <laughs> yeah, yes, it's the uh, our YouTube live stream producer and feature producer, Ryan White. All right, gentlemen, thank you all for everything you do. Now, uh, just a reminder, my, uh, my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You can subscribe at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. But I have another new podcast, and this one has been in the works for about two and a half years. I started working on this. uh, um, It it was originally designed as a terrestrial radio show, and I was working on it with my late partner, R. Gary Patterson, rock and roll historian. And, of course, he passed away last May. And I I was determined I was going to forge ahead because that's what uh, Gary would want me to do. And um, so it has morphed into a podcast, and it's ready to launch, finally. It's called The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. And I'm happy to announce it's part of the Jericho Network, as in Chris Jericho of the WWE, uh, and in association with Westwood One. And it launches Wednesday, February 28th, with new episodes dropping every Wednesday. And I'll be interviewing rock legends and and, uh, friends and family of of some of the legends. And we'll talk about mysterious deaths in rock and rock and the paranormal. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Check it out starting Feb 28th on the Jericho Network and Westwood One. And uh, I'm sorry that our Gary isn't around to see this project finally lift off. But then again... Uh, I think he knows all about it, and he's just as thrilled and excited as I am. All right. I trust everyone has had their fill of the uh, the Winter Olympics getting up. Now, Ryan, you were telling me you get up you get up at like 5 in the morning. Or s- stay up, yeah. Yeah, or, or stay up, and you yeah. watch this thing live, these yep. things live. They See, that was a problem for me. I can't do it. So this is like one of the first Winter Olympics. The mighty Aphrodite and I haven't been sort of glued because we love the Olympics, and she was a torchbearer back in '88 uh, for the Calgary uh, Olympics, and um, so we didn't watch it. Um, great big medal haul for Team Canada, placed third behind Norway and Germany. Right? That's right, Norway and Germany. Yep. Yeah. How did Kazakhstan do? Kazakhstan just won one bronze medal in the ladies' moguls That's skiing. It. Yep. Wow. You'd think with Kazakhstan's capital uh, being the world headquarters for the Illuminati, they, you know, they might have done a little bit better. However, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. The only thing I know about Kazakhstan is um, we had a, uh, being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, I remember we had a, a, a kind of a, a big, lanky forward by the name of Andropov, and he was from Kazakhstan. That's right. That's it. That's all you know. And then, all of a sudden... The other day in the mail comes this very, very heavy book. There were two of them, actually. And my little guy North is on mail call duty this week, so he had to go to the, the door. He could barely carry this thing down the stairs. It's it's just a solid... Um, it's like a coffee table book, except it's not just all beautiful, glossy photographs. And there are there are many of them. It's just jam-packed with amazing information here as well. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Um just it's, 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 as I say, it's a very impressive book, and we're going to talk about 
Astana, the architecture, the myth, and destiny. Truth be told, again, I knew nothing about the, the country. It is the ninth largest country in the world. It's the largest landlocked country in the world. And, of course, a former Soviet republic. But it has some weird architecture. Some of it's, you know, it's very new. It's shiny and gleamy, but it's got uh, some obvious ancient Egyptian influences. There's a pyramid there, the phoenix, uh, the world's largest glass sphere, which I believe is the library. So, again, why are some calling Astana world headquarters for the Illuminati? Let's find out, shall we? Frank Albo was featured as the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code. And his approach to architecture, landscape, and design seeks to transform public spaces into interactive journeys of discovery, which elevate the mind and promote a sense of wonder. He holds graduate, de- graduate degrees in ancient Near Eastern languages, art history, and a Ph.D. in the history of architecture from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Albo has a unique ability to peel back conventional history to provide new vistas of understanding about our built environment and the cultures of the past. He's currently an adjunct professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, where he specializes in architecture, Freemasonry, and the Western esoteric tradition. Frank Albo, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. It's, um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, first of all, congrats on the book. This is truly impressive. Uh, it's, just, it's, a, it's a gorgeous book. I mean, never mind the information, which is, you know, amazing, but just it just looks terrific, and uh, um, I, I congratulate you on that. Now, a lot of people, well, a lot of people know you um, from your book, uh, The Hermetic Code, and, and about, uh, you know, Masonic symbols in the Manitoba legislature, and your search to sort of uncover the, uh, the meaning and so forth, and, and learn about the, the architect, Frank Worthington um, Simon. So let me ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about that before we move on to Astana. If you well, could, uh, certainly. Yeah, if you could just take us on a, a very quick guided tour of the Manitoba legislature. Tell me about some of the, the interesting symbols that sort of first jumped out at you, uh, you know, as a young, I guess, a young grad student. Well, it happened by sheer accident. Um, I was in the last year of my undergraduate degree, and I was going into the Department of uh, Near and Middle Eastern Languages at the University of Toronto, and I spotted on the roof of the Manitoba Legislative Building two recumbent Egyptian sphinxes. And like the fabled story of old, I was enchanted thoroughly by this bizarre feature and set out to answer, as it were, the riddle of the Sphinx. And that just brought me into the door where um, I began to notice other features of the building that thoroughly inspired me. And um, it took me down a rabbit hole of basically enchantment and discovery where I spent four graduate degrees and ten years trying to get into the mind of the dead British architect and genius, Frank Worthington Simon, who built this building as a reconstruction of King Solomon's Temple and also a uh, 5,000 years of lost architectural knowledge. He was a high-level Freemason. He believed in the tradition of Freemasonry very deeply and used the building as a tableau to tell the story of his ancient fraternity in a coded way. It's so coded, in fact, that for 100 years, no one ever noticed some of the most obvious features of the building, including, of course, that there is Hermes Trismegistus on the dome. The golden boy. Correct. And, And explain why is Hermes, or I guess that's Mercury in the ancient Roman pantheon, why why is Hermes special to the Freemasons? Well, Hermes is 
one of the Prisca Theologia, which for Renaissance historians and scholars was the first philosopher. He was seen as a pagan prophet of Christian truth before the, the coming of the Christian revelation, and a contemporary of Moses. He was attributed to having written 40,000 books, but um, by the time of the Renaissance, these works were lost and then suddenly rediscovered, and it brought about an entirely new way of seeing the ancient world. Um, Hermes, as we know, or Mercury, the um, elusive messenger of Zeus, is not the Hermes Trismegistus of, um, that I'm speaking of. Uh, this particular Hermes is a, a conflation of the Egyptian god Thoth, the god of writing and magic, and the ancient scribe, and um, the Mercury that we're familiar with, the guide of souls, the psychopomp, and the trickster. And around late antiquity, both of these figures merge into a new character, Trismegistus, the thrice greatest, and he becomes the father of all esoteric knowledge alchemy, astrology, uh, number magic, mysticism through uh, uh, occult philosophy, and basically the entire species of uh, esoteric philosophy should be uh, attributed in total to this character, Hermes Trismegistus. And in fact, in Freemasonry, he uh, appears in the oldest uh, manuscripts uh, of the medieval period that uh, uh, signaled the origins of Freemasonry. So there he is, glistening on the dome, um, locally known as the Golden Boy, but um, unaware is that he is pointing to these mysteries deep inside the building. Uh, now, Frank Worthington Simon, he, did, he not, did he work on Balmoral Castle for Queen Victoria? Mm-hmm. Did he remodel yeah, he, it or something? He, he worked on several very noted buildings. He was an elusive uh, professor. He had an interest in uh, um, uh, biblical languages. His father, for instance, was um, uh, one of the most famous uh, nonconformist theologians of the British Empire. And uh, at a very young age, he took towards finding uh, mysteries coded in art and architecture and sought to basically rebuild them. So in the case of Balmoral, he, Balmoral, he did the, the reconstructions there, but he worked on many wonderful buildings. But he had an, uh, an artist penchant for truth. He, was, uh, he, he had a wandering spirit, but he, uh, his final work was this building in, in Winnipeg, which at the time was um, the Continental Showpiece. It was the most expensive building in the country. Winnipeg was destined to be the Chicago of the North. It's not the Winnipeg that we uh, see of today. It was um, supposed to be a city of great promise, and this building was the signal, kind of the the Roman maxim, build it and they will come, Uh, this idea of using grand architecture to signal the the rise of uh, the city that was growing faster than uh, any other city in North America for at the turn of the 20th century. So this building was this showpiece, and Simon was selected to build it, and he basically poured into the building um, uh, a a history lesson in stone, and he was hoping to be figured out. Ah, so he, the people that commissioned this work and and hired him, they didn't know what he was doing. No, I I don't think so. I mean, there's some speculation that some of uh, the artists, he had some very seasoned artists that uh, 
worked alongside him might have known one uh, one element or another. But I think in total, he was the grand architect, and it was his vision to build it in that way. So just walking through the building, uh, the, the sphinxes, you wouldn't notice because they're, they're not visible from the ground, but they bear a hieroglyphic inscription on their chest, a bona fide ancient hieroglyphic message, which uh, beckons the sun god to give life to something in the building. Um, well, and we find out later what that is. You walk into the Grand Staircase Hall, perhaps the most beautiful staircase hall in, in North America, and it is designed uh, to be exactly 66.6 feet in width and 66.6 feet in length. All right, Frank, just hold on. We'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. He's like the real Dan Brown, folks, except that uh, the Da Vinci Code was fiction, and this is all real. Frank Albo, and we'll also talk about Astana. Worldwide headquarters, perhaps, for the Illuminati? We'll find out when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Frank Albo is here. And, um, well, we're talking about the Hermetic Code, sort of unraveling the mystery, the Masonic mystery of the Manitoba legislature. But uh, we're going to get into this book in mere moments, Astana, uh, which is the capital of Kazakhstan, the former Soviet Republic. And as I mentioned earlier, may just be the weirdest capital city in the world. Uh, just a few more moments uh, on uh, on the Manitoba legislature because it's it's fascinating. Um you were sort of giving us the guided tour, but I can't figure out where um, the architect was coming from because, I mean, on the one hand, there are allusions to, like, the Last Supper uh, in there, I, I recall reading about, but then there are these, you know, more pagan allusions. Was he was he a Christian? What was he? Oh, yeah, he was certainly a uh, 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 Christian persuasion, but uh, as part of the fraternal tradition in which he's emulating Freemasonry, they... Uh, uphold the notion that they are the progenitors, the builders of the great religious institutions of the world. So from the Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right up into the uh, pagan temples and, uh, of course, the, the Egyptian marbles. So the idea is that he contained in one building this kind of encyclopedia of world architecture as an homage to the craft of Freemasonry. And um, in, in that regard, there is one building that stands alone as the um, the bow ideal of perfection, and that's King Solomon's Temple, and that's where he chose to incorporate perhaps the most important room in the building uh, as a perfect reconstruction of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple with a very with a replica Ark of the Covenant. And was it wasn't it his intention? Uh, this is kind of a pipe dream, I think. But he actually thought that the, uh, I guess they call them MLAs out there, the members of the legislative assembly would actually wear togas to to, to <laughs> debate right. and to vote. Well, yes, he he is a student of the idea that uh, arrives out of Freemasonry, that architecture, among all disciplines known to the human imagination, has the capacity to reform the soul. So the idea is, is that could you construct a building that by virtue of its design and its geometry and its, and its uh, uh, orientation, that it would in- inculcate 
divine virtues upon you. And that was the idea with this building, so much so that he believed that when it opened to the public, it would make you more intelligent, better balanced, and altogether more civilized human beings just by entering into the building. And uh, I, I take the people, for the last seven years, I've done guided tours of the mm-hmm. building, and um, uh, I sort of conclude by saying at the very end, do you feel in some regard, knowing what you've now seen here, that uh, you, you feel somewhat more illuminated as, as you leave? And uh, obviously, I leave that as a, as a burning question. Right. And the premier at the time, Gary Doerr, mm-hmm. uh, didn't he come wandering into your office one time and ask, asking you about your work and, and said something like, what do you think the place is haunted? And mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Well, actually, uh, he invited me to his office. Oh. I wrote uh, my undergraduate thesis on the building, focusing on two rooms. And uh, one I called the room of protection, the other I called the altar. And he unbeknownst to me, this, this paper that I wrote had circulated to the highest levels of government, and when it landed on the premier's desk, he called me into his office, and I was rather shocked to see across his oak desk a copy of my, my thesis, and he was flipping through it, and he sternly looked up at me and said, I think that you think this building's haunted, and I very brashly said, uh, the White House has nothing on this building, and right <laughs> then and there, he gave me a grant to... Um, explore the building's properties. And he said, well, what do we need? And I said, well, I need to be in this building at all times of the day. Uh, I need to go to all parts of the building. I need access to all government documents related to the building's construction. And um, I was basically given this carte blanche access for two years, and it led to what later became the publication, The Hermetic Code. Well, good for you for for grabbing the bull, or I should say, the bison's <laughs> bison <laughs> right. by the uh, bison by the uh, the horns. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, and uh, and people have sort of referred to you as a real life uh, uh, Dan Brown uh, for unraveling this mystery. Um, now, I want I want to get into this this book again. Let me hold this up again. Astana. Mm-hmm. I got to be honest with you. I I was not familiar with uh, Kazakhstan's capital city until. Uh, this impressive book arrived at my front door. Why do you say it could be the uh, the capital city for the Illuminati? Well, those aren't my words. That's basically the um, conclusion that is many people, bloggers and, and otherwise, have um, uh, uh, exclaimed on the internet. So that's what drew drew my attention to to the city. Is well f- uh, on the surface, and 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 rightly so. Most people in the West probably think of Kazakhstan, and the knee-jerk thought response is, isn't that the homeland of Borat, um, uh, let alone the Illuminati capital of the world? <laughs> so I was, uh, similar to how I stumbled upon the Manitoba Legislative Building, I was preparing a, a graduate course on utopian cities for students, and I wanted to do a chronology of this, these times and efforts to build paradise on Earth. So I thought I'd begin with Plato's Atlantis and conclude with um, Astana, the most recently planned capital in the world, the capital of Kazakhstan. And as I was doing my, my Google search, I stumbled upon the same nefarious conclusions, that when you see a giant glass pyramid, a, uh, a large all-seeing eye, and a reconstruction of a UFO as the architectural marvels of a capital, that has led many people to assume that it must be the Illuminati capital of the world. And, and funnily enough, with around the same time, there were three great archaeological discoveries that happened in Kazakhstan uh, over the last, say, uh, seven years. One was um, uh, potentially uh, the, the first 
step pyramid on the the, the steps of um, uh, of Central Asia. Uh, the other are massive, immense geoglyphs like the Nazca lines in Peru. But um, and among these symbols that have been carved on the ground, perhaps 8,000 years ago, is the, the very first swastika. And uh, additionally, there is, and this has created a lot of rumble, is a giant 1,200-foot pentagram, which happened to be spotted by somebody doing a search on Google Earth that's called the Devil's Pentagram. So uh, there were all of these wild associations with uh, Astana, and I thought this was the perfect opportunity to step in and find out what was, uh, what was really brewing there. And um, uh, funnily enough, and my apologies for this monologue, but as I was doing all this research, like out of the blue, I got a call from the protocol officer of Manitoba every now and then when dignitaries come to Manitoba. I give, uh, I'm requested by the government to give tours, uh, whether it's the Prince of Wales or um, Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I'll be asked to give a kind of sanitized version of the Hermetico tour. And on this occasion, the ambassador of Kazakhstan and his wife were there at the same time that I'm reading all across my, um, uh, the tabs of my computer screen that the Illuminati has created a capital called Astana. <laughs> so I just jumped on the opportunity to meet him. And uh, when we met, um, I basically said that um, the, the architecture is so bizarre and strange, you need a, um, a formidable study historian to examine it. And um, that, that is what launched the book. Well, now the, the man behind a, a lot of the, the designs is, is the leader there, right? Naz, mm-hmm. oh, Naz, yeah. Nazarbayev, who, I mean, he rules that country with an iron fist. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, here, this, this, uh, among the uh, 21st century autocrats, this guy is Tom Brady. There is perhaps <laughs> no other modern leader to have used architecture and fantasy to crystallize the gr- dreams of a nation like Nazarbayev, and he has done it with uh, pretty much uh, autonomous control. Um, and so Astana is really the, the brainchild of a single leader. And um, so that, that's, that, that's what he set out to do. I, I turn this on its head if, um, if you um, have, have peered through my book, yeah. that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in not looking at the, the, the politics of, of statescraft, but really how we have used architecture and myth to um, galvanize our hopes and dreams, unlike... Uh, Nothing else. These are the two ingredients that have, that have really forged nations, architecture and mythology. All right. Let me ask you about this. Um, uh, it's, it's quite a remarkable building, this uh, Bayterek Tower. It looks like a, a, a hand coming out of the ground holding a golden ball or a golden egg. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that, that building. That's totally bizarre. Yeah. It's, um, Bayterek Tower is meant to symbolize the tree of life and you summit the tree of life, and you're informed about this ancient Kazakh fable, which is actually a Sumerian table, a fable called the Tale of Atana, perhaps the oldest myth in world history, um, around um, uh, this, this young child hero that saves humanity by being lifted up into heaven on the back of a hero, uh, on the back of, of an eagle. 
and this building basically evokes, evokes this ancient fable and constructs myth into this, this golden glory. So the, 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 the sphere in the center is meant to be the sun. You're meant to participate in this journey by journeying up into the, uh, the golden rays of the sun, and you peer down the great mall of Astana, and you see nothing but phoenix, phoenix, eagle, eagle. And uh, I look into that and I explore that notion of how eagle and statecraft have gone hand in hand since prior to Rome. Well, in fact, why is it that the eagle has been the emblem of choice for um, the, the rise of a new culture or civilization, whether it's Mexico or um, Germany yep. or Persia or the very first city-states of Sumer? It's always been the eagle. The Byzantine, so the Byzantine the Empire, is, the double-headed eagle in that case. Yeah, of course. Exactly. I mean, but Zeus, one of his symbols was the eagle. Does it go back to Zeus? Yes. In fact, Zeus is one of the uh, elements of this age-old fable called the Tale of Etana. Most people, if they know anything about uh, Sumerian literature, are probably familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. But yeah. uh, even older than Gilgamesh is this story, uh, which begins basically with the construction of a great city, a monumental central tower, and the quest for eternal youth with the help of an eagle. And this story has been retold in countless ways, about 300 variations around the world, from Ireland to the Arctic Circle, from the Alexander Romance to Garuda, the myth of, uh, of um, uh, the Hindu um, uh, um, uh, deity Vishnu, and countless others. In Greek mythology, it is Ganymede, who is the boy abducted by Zeus in the form of an eagle to serve as the cupbearer in Olympus. So it's, it's a very ancient uh, fable and story or myth. So the buildings in Astana are not just, you know, and I think that's a very blasé account to just say, oh, it's an, it's an Illuminati city. It goes much, much deeper. It goes into the, the, the notion of myth as a form of, of changing a whole new order of things, and that's what the capital is setting out to do. Now, in the, um, I guess, kind of the observation deck, I guess, of, of the Beiteric Tower, uh, mm-hmm. It almost seems like it's supposed to be a monument to ecumenicalism, uh, where you have all the, these different religions have sort of signed these, I don't know what you would call them, sort of plaques. Or Let's get into, we're coming up on a break here, we'll come back, we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about the Palace of Peace and Reconciliation, and uh, much more, Astana. Oh, we'll also talk about the Astana Challenge, how you could win a luxury vacation worth nearly $30,000 to the capital of Kazakhstan. Back with Frank Albo on the other side. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Frank Elbo is uh, with us. You'll know him from his work with the Hermetic Code, and his new book is Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. We'll tell you about the Astana Challenge. This is really, uh, really cool. Uh, there are sort of uh, clues encrypted into this book, and if you solve the, um, the puzzle, basically, you can win a trip to Astana, a luxury uh, vacation. Do they get a lot of tourists there now, or is it kind of a closed society, Frank? No, it, they, they just celebrated the opening of the World Expo, and uh, about uh, three million people went um, 
to visit Astana for that. Um, you do not need a visa from, from Canada. It's the, of the Central Asian countries. This is really the um, kind of the crown jewel, as it were. Uh, very open uh, towards uh, foreign um, uh, tourism and also foreign investment. <laughs> oh, interesting. But it's, it's ostensibly it's a communist country, isn't it? No. No. Ah, okay. Interesting. It, it, it was. It was one of the 15 countries that broke off after the Soviet Union. It was the least likely to succeed because Kazakhstan had been plagued by perhaps the, the, the worst deck of cards in the, in the uh, 20th century. It was the dumping ground for Stalin's gulags. It was a nuclear test site for nearly 600 uh, secret nuclear tests and uh, the world's worst environmental disaster, the drying up of the Aral Sea, mm. uh, had happened on Kazakh soil, and there was a famine there. Uh, so for um, uh, it, it's really a, an apotheosis from, uh, like, it literally the flight of uh, the resurrection of the eagle could perhaps be best symbolized by um, uh, this city. It was the, the engine that could, so to speak. Fascinating. So back to the Beitarek Tower. Okay. Um, you have this wooden globe at the top, and it's surrounded by these, I guess they're petals, uh, 17 of them, which are supposed to represent some of the major religions. So what's the message there? Okay. Uh, I think you're conflating that with the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. Ah, perhaps. I yeah. do that sometimes. So I there, conflate. There are three, three major buildings that um, are... Uh, most noteworthy, perhaps four, in Astana. The Baitirik Tower, which we discussed, yeah. the, um, the giant glass uh, sphere of the World Expo site, the world's largest uh, sphere. Yes. Uh, there's also the um, Presidential Library, which I described as the all-seeing eye. Perhaps there's no other building in the world more uh, um, redolent of an all-seeing eye than this one, and then the building that we're talking about now, which is the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. It sounds bizarre to say this, but every three years, at the apex of a giant glass pyramid in Kazakhstan is where the Assembly of World Traditional Religions meet, where they invite um, religious leaders from around the world to meet and discuss notions of religious equality. Uh, it's a sort of multi-faith cathedral dedicated to the renunciation of violence and promotion of faith. But the reason it's, it's done there is because um, uh, Kazakhstan in its soil, in its soul and soil, is uh, a nomadic country. It's uh, partially, I think, superficially Islamic, but they're very much open to the uh, tolerance of other faiths. It's perhaps the most tolerant of uh, the uh, Central Asian countries. And because of this, it has been a kind of hodgepodge of, of religious cultural experience. It incorporates Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Nestorian Christianity, uh, the mystical branch of Islam called Sufism. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a, a Jewish presence, and so even Zoroastrianism, some of the lost ancient religions like Tengrianism, this animist belief system celebrating the, um, the virtue of the sky, are all found here, still left alive uh, in Kazakh soil. So they've decided to evoke this, in the form of a building that is a pyramid. Interesting. And is in there fact, that, that yeah. uh, the world uh, traditional religions, they meet every three years um, at uh, the apex of this, of this pyramid, and that will be happening this year in June. And what is the significance of, uh, of the three levels? Is there kind of an illuminated symbolism mm -hmm. there? 
Well, the, the building itself was designed by the British architect Norman Foster to be a journey from darkness into light. So when you descend into the building, you literally descend into the belly of the earth in this darkened foyer and uh, passage, and then slowly you ascend up to this gleaming uh, peak of light where it's uh, surrounded by a kind of, well, it's really a sanctum sanctorum from darkness to light. And uh, on the on the ceiling again, isn't there kind of another kind of an invocation of the sun god? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the 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 two features in are essential to understanding the matrix of belief in Astana. One is the ever presence of the sun, and the other is the eternal blue sky. So this the gold of the sun and the blue of the sky are, uh, I think, even by government prescription buildings have to have either a blue or a gold facade. But the sun god, isn't that antithetical to Christianity? Well, um, it depends how you, uh, how you want to look at it. I mean, it's the, uh, I mean, in, in, in what sense? Well, when I think of uh, the sun god, I mean, we think of, um, you know, pagan, pagan worship. Uh, the, yeah, but the, the in, in this case, it's more a notion of uh, the, the world is, uh, the cosmos is alive, and there are life-giving values and virtues of, of the sun. And in many ways, even Yahweh and uh, uh, Jesus from the Gospels are uh, evoking these old uh, solar notions of, um, of heavenly ascent and the power of the sun. Ah, okay. All right. Um, we're coming up on a break here, but I want to I talk about the, um, I think it's billed as the world's largest tent. Um, this Is it called the, uh, the Khan Shutter Entertainment Center. Mm-hmm. Um, well, here's the music. We're going into a break. Let's talk about that when we come back, and then maybe we can uh, we can circle back to that uh, giant uh, a pentagram that is seen from the air. Sure. Uh, we'll do all of that when we come back, and of course we have to talk about the Astana Challenge. Frank Albo is with us, and here again the book Astana: Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. Back with more of the Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, we are back with Frank Albo, and the book is Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. We'll tell you about the Astana Challenge in a moment. We were going to talk about the um, uh, this uh, shopping... Uh, no, it's an entertainment center. Uh, it's uh, sort of billed as the world's largest tent. Uh, tell me about that. Um, okay, this is another... Norman Foster creation. It is uh, meant to be a, both an allusion to the highest peak in Kazakhstan, the Khan Tengri Mountain. There goes the Tengri again, the notion of uh, this reference to the supreme celestial deity of the Altaic world, world the, the, the sky. Um, but also it is um, meant to symbolize the tent, the ancient nomadic tent that um, uh, the, the Kazakhs would um, 
uh, uh, journey with. And in fact, in many regards, the, the tent is seemingly facile and, and a rudimentary architectural construction, but it is full of um, esoteric symbolism, which is incorporated into this building. So the building on the, on the surface looks like some Xanadu-esque fantasy uh, um, shopping mall in, in Kazakhstan, but on another level, it is um, meant to evoke these, these older traditions of, um, of the ancient nomads and uh, Tengrianism in, in particular, this, uh, this belief of, um, well, uh, being ecologically minded and um, uh, uh, deeply connected to the earth and nature. Uh, and then they have this uh, the shopping center. It's got an artificial beach. Yeah, uh, right. So it's got. <laughs> I see. I even forget these other details. Um, right. So there. It's. Um, uh, it, it's a bit of a pleasure dome in that there's uh, all, all the shopping experiences, and at the the, the height of it, there is a, a full beach with water slide and and everything. And I'm guessing that this was all paid for because this is an oil-rich country, right? They've, they've got billions right. and I'm, billions of barrels of oil there. Correct. I mean, and we, we should probably clarify that, that um, uh, Kazakhstan has the full house of uh, natural resources. It's rich in oil, gas, diamond, uranium, and gold. And this is, it uses its tremendous oil wealth to create this, this city to be a kind of beacon of um, a kind of billboard of foreign investment. That's one level of looking at, at, at the city. But beneath that are these mythical elements and themes that actually take us back to um, our, our ancient collective past. And with only, what, about 16 million residents, I mean, are, mm-hmm. are, are most of the citizens then rich? No. No, no, no. The uh, uh, Astana itself is designed to be uh, only grow to three million people. Most of what they did was in designing the, the capital is they designed the capital to be a master plan from start. Most capital cities don't do this, but in, in, in Astana, it's, it's perimetered by a, a giant tree ring. And it's meant to only grow to 3 million people because after that amount, you get urban squalor, um, uh, poverty, and other uh, uh, things that aren't good for the civic good. So this uh, right now, I think it has a population of just over a million. But once it reaches 3 million, then they've already been preparing other planned capitals. Aha. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the, I know this isn't a, a show about politics, but, you know, the, the, the president there, the, I think according to their constitution, they're only be supposed to serve five-year terms. Uh, and here we are since independence, <laughs> sure. 1991. He's been the only president. That's right. So I, I mean, g- you, you, this guy is the um, a kind of real-life George Washington of uh, Kazakhstani people. Uh, he is, uh, in, in many respects, and I sort of compare him to Walt Disney in, in the book, uh, well, both kind of Jefferson meets Walt Disney on steroids <laughs> in the sense that uh, Jefferson being a, uh, a founding father that believed arch- architecture could guide the uh, civic process of the nation, and uh, Disney in the sense of creating this fantasy experience that is meant to collectively uh, bridge together uh, ideas of... Um, of uh, uh, solving the chaotic 
urban settings of, of modern cities. That's what Disney set out to do. He was uh, spent 30 years of his life working on town planning. So, uh, but him and, uh, as uh, his life and experience is rather, it's almost like a storybook legend. He grew up in a nomad's yurt, the most humble beginnings uh, on the steps, and he rose to become perhaps the most uh, strategically important uh, leader in Central Asia. I mean, this is the bridge between the East and the West, and it is wholly run by Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev is the uh, is Kazakhstan, and um, and, and many. It, they thought it was a foolish errand that he was trying to build this capital city. He didn't have much support for it, but um, uh, that was what he set out to do. And he used, um, you know, fable, folklore, and um, ideas of architecture to to do that. So it, that, that, that to me makes it unique. It seems like they've decided, okay, we'll we'll get to the democracy part later. Let's just work on the economic development first. Yeah, uh, very much so. That Nazarbayev, right from the outset, said that uh, Kazakhstan would be a managed democracy. That's sort of a euphemism for saying, okay, we were under the Soviet Union for nearly 300 years. There's no way we're going to go in, in, in toto to democracy and suddenly think this is going to be rainbows and lollipops. So it is, uh, it's certainly managed. He doesn't have any uh, official opposition, and he is uh, elected democratically, you could say, quote-unquote, um, by 90 percentile um, ev- since 1991. They have no interest in wanting uh, another um, uh, public figure. That's why I call him the Tom Brady of uh, autocrats. <laughs> we love him, but he wins Super Bowls. Now, I mean, most people hate him, that is. Right. But, and as you said, it's to, to refer to it as the, you know, the Illuminati capital, capital is, kind of, is kind of trite. However, let me ask you, I mean, do you, is there some nefarious intention here? Do you, uh, should we be concerned about uh, what's going on, not only in Astana, but in Kazakhstan? Uh... Well, that wasn't the subject of this book, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, because what I set out to do in this book was to do something I'd never done before, which was the entire my entire um, body of research up until this point was in decoding real, legitimate Masonic or uh, um, uh, Masonic buildings, gardens, cemeteries, uh, and the like. And in this case, this was a wholly imaginary Masonic capital, at least in the eyes of many, or an Illuminati capital, that I wanted to encode. And in the process of encoding this capital, I mean, I've placed these ideas here. It's not like I'm inventing them entirely. Mm -hmm. I'm using um, solid historical research and work. And the reason I'm setting out to do this is because I think it is myth more than anything else that can actually change the world. So I'm using this city as a, as a fable, as a way of kind of turning things on its head. There is a subtext in my entire book. I spent a very long time working on writing a subtext within the book. Every image is very carefully chosen. Even every word seemingly out of place is there for a very specific reason because I'm inviting, I want to invite, the public to read deeply using the, um, the, the language of design, architecture, and the imagination to see what lies beneath. And that's what this book is really about. At one level, it's a superficial reading, just like the stories of the Bible. That is one reading of the Bible. At a deeper level, there is an allegorical level. And at a much more even deeper level than that, 
there are different truths. And so I'm setting out to say, ah, at one level, you see that this is the Illuminati capital of the world. On another level, you'll, you'll find that there are these mythic aso- associations. And yet at another level, which I'm really hoping to, to get people's attention, is to look and read very deeply. And to do that, I've created this kind of ploy, uh, a device to get people in the door, which is this $30,000 prize, or perhaps by the, this summer, it might be two Bitcoin. So I'm going to use some that as a kind of carrot to get you to read deeply into the text. And when it's solved, you'll find out why I set out to write this book the way I did. Uh, that's the Asana Challenge. Now, can you tell us a, a little bit about, I mean, how how this works exactly? I mean, um, Well, all I can tell you is that concealed in the work is enigmas, secrets, and um, uh, a kind of hidden language, as it were. And I'm setting out to find the astute reader to look carefully at, um, at the book, every element of the book. And uh, by doing so, I properly engage you, hopefully, to... Um, uh, participate in the myth. That's the point. It's kind right. of Joseph Campbell-esque in the sense yes. that uh, Joseph Campbell said, where is Odysseus today? He is on the street. You are Hercules. And I want in a similar way to say, listen, if we are going to change the world, then we need to uh, look at things at a much deeper level. Uh, so how do they enter? Well, so you'll, um, if you just go to my website, it's uh, astonamyth.com. Well, mm-hmm. first of all, you have to buy the book. Right. You buy the book, you go through it, and um, uh, you might see that there are some things out of place. For instance, I, I, was, uh, I announced on Facebook today that I was going to give a clue. Uh, it has remained unsolved so far. So what I do is, is on my Instagram and my Facebook uh, I, I place little kind of suggestive clues to get people to get kind of uh, deeper into the, the meaning of uh, the subtext of the book. Uh, by doing so, you just go to my website, astonamyth.com. There's a thing that says uh, Astana Challenge. You click on that, and you submit your answer. Uh, great. This is absolutely brilliant. It's a, it's a terrific idea. It gets people engaged, and as I said, it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous, impressive book. Frank, I've enjoyed this so much. I learned a heck of a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, it's astanamyth.com. Astanamyth.com. Yeah, astanamyth.com. And also look at my Instagram. I just posted a clue today. So um, off you go. It, uh, the prize is still wide open. All right. Frank Albo, thank you again. Thank you. All right. When we come back, what did you think about that, guys? Pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? You know, I was looking at a lot of the architectural features you were talking about. Yes. And they're very... Impressive, amazing. Yeah, it, I, I like his reference to Walt Disney, though. A lot of it looks like, well, I think the, the presidential palace is described as the White House meets Walt Disney. Uh, but it is, you know, it is a weird capital, no, no doubt about it. But I'm not sure what to make of it. Uh, I am not sure. However, people can buy the book and uh, participate in the uh, Astana Challenge. Would you go to Astana for, uh, would you visit there for a $30,000 luxury vacation? Well, you know what, like it it looks, the pictures look like a tidy, well laid out city. Mm -hmm. Doesn't look overpopulated. No, no. It looks kind of cool. Absolutely. All right. I'll tell you uh, who else is cool. And that's our next guest, Dr. Cass Ingram. He's back. It's flu season. So we'll talk. The cure is in the cupboard. That would be oil of oregano. When the conspiracy show continues right after this. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Hey, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. And hi to all of you who are tuning in on one of our affiliates across North America. Of course, the Conspiracy Show podcast, which is everywhere, the Conspiracy Show app, and the Zoomer Radio app, the live YouTube stream. Uh, those of you um, who are joining us on the uh, in the live YouTube chat, uh, however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Just a, a quick programming note before we uh, get on with things. Next week on the program, musician... Kevin Estrella, very interesting guy, rock musician, and uh, also is a contactee, he says. And uh, he has an album out called Pyramids on Mars, and he'll be here in hour one to talk about sound healing. And uh, I presume we'll, we'll get into his, um, his alien or UFO encounters as well. Kevin Estrella. All right, um, hour two, evidential medium, psychic, and medical intuitive Carolyn Clapper uh, will be here. All right. Uh, we are told that this year could be the worst flu season in history. Medical experts are bracing for one of the worst flu seasons. The main flu strain for this, this season is H3N2 virus, and it is said to be more deadly than the swine flu. Uh, now, I know in the U.S. it's, uh, it's pretty widespread, about 46 states, according to the, uh, the CDC. The, uh, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and other organizations are calling for the development of a universal vaccine. And uh, I had John Rappaport, uh, who I love, uh, of nomorefakenews.com, and on oh, several weeks ago. And we were talking about um, flu and how the, the flu vaccine this year, I, I believe they're saying it's about 10% effective. But then... Uh, John Rappaport was telling me about this um, article uh, by a Dr. Peter Doshi that appeared in the Brit- British Medical Journal. And get this, this is again in the British Medical Journal, Dr. Peter Doshi or Doshi, writing that each year hundreds of thousands of respiratory samples are taken from flu patients in the U.S. and tested in labs. Here's the kicker. Only a small percentage of these samples show the presence of a flu virus. And this means most of the people in America who are diagnosed by doctors with the flu have no flu virus in their bodies. So they don't have the flu. So I guess by logical extension, if you assume the flu vaccine is useful and safe, it couldn't possibly prevent all the flu cases that aren't flu cases. So, in other words, the flu vaccine couldn't possibly work. Again, this is Dr. Peter Doshi writing in the British Medical Journal, as reported by our good friend John Rappaport. All right, well, the point is, 
the flu is out there or whatever it is that's getting a hold of people and it's it's nasty and uh, some of you may like to may, may choose to take the vaccine others would rather shy away from it and give it a very wide berth but there are alternatives that's the point and um, I have known this gentleman I think well over 20 years and one of the books that um, I first sort of became acquainted with and, and and his work was called The Cure is in the Cupboard this came out about 17, 18 years ago, and uh, it's just recently been reissued along with a CD, um, an audio CD, the audio CD version of The Cure is in the Cupboard. It's been fully revised and expanded, and, and the cure that we're talking about, the most ancient medicine of all, we're talking about, of course, wild oregano, and it's not just for the flu. Uh, as we'll learn over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Uh, Dr. Cass Ingram is a physician, researcher, the author of over 25 books, including How to Eat Right and Live Longer, Nutrition Tests for Better Health, and The Cure is in the Forest. Hey, Dr. Cass, welcome back. Hello, hello. How you doing, my friend? I'm, ver- uh, I'm quite good. A, quite a year, so much news and disinformation as well on the flu and, and all that. I thought It's good that you mentioned some of the, the findings of Rappaport, because I'll delve into that. But yeah... Uh, great to be back, my friend. Likewise. But, but, but let me just circle back. Are you familiar with the Dr. Peter Doshi? I don't know if I'm pronouncing that hey, right. Tell me about Doshi. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, this, that, I was just referring to this article that he wrote in the British Medical Journal, and this is where they, they take respiratory samples from flu patients in the U.S., hundreds of thousands of respiratory samples, okay. and only a small percentage of those samples show the presence of a flu virus. I think that's a very important point because if you uh, you then just randomly treat these people with cortisone or Tamiflu or antibiotics and and various uh, antipyretics, in other words, to suppress the fever, you're just gonna you, you don't know what you're dealing with. You're going to suppress the immune system that much further, as well as the flu shot, just you know, constantly pounding away. And then and then, how do we know that these people are not dying from immunosuppression? from medical as a consequence of medical intervention. If you start to study the cases of fatality, which I've done, and I've published a couple articles on it, I've, I have mentioned it, obviously, in the Cures in the Cupboard, in the new book as well, The uh, Doctor's Guide to Oil of Oregano, 101 Uses. I do mention that, but, but in some of the op-eds I've published, I, I, I've, I've laid out the fact that most of the fatalities... This year, I mean, how do you have a child die from the flu anyway? Come on. Uh, how do you have, you know, a healthy athlete or a 50-year-old lady or a, a, you know, healthy adult male drop dead? So it, the, these fatalities are associated with bizarre illness uh, where, where there's liver failure, there's encephalitis, there's coma, you know, there's extremely high sudden illness with a fever of 105, 106. So this is much, much, I mean, there's more to this than just malaise and aches and flu. You're right. However, do you know what they're associated with? The flu vaccine. Hmm. Now, whether or not the flu vaccine gave them just the flu or more immunosuppression and corrupted the system somehow, and then they go in... They get antibiotics, they get Tamiflu, the immune system gets more, you know, whacked. The second thing is there are some fatalities uh, associated with Tamiflu. With, you know, you know giving antibiotics uh, seems to be, then there's some sepsis. So once again, you know, the number one cause of fatality in the Canada and the United States can be traced to medical intervention. 
excessive use of drugs, excessive use of antibiotics, sepsis in hospitals, pneumonia as a consequence, uh, drug-resistant germs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's more complicated, like you say, than just the spread of a potentially pandemic flu virus. But some of the people are getting sick from H3N2, which is, you know what, it's a pig virus. Mm -hmm. And the only way you're going to get that pig virus easily is to get vaccinated. That's the number one component of the vaccines being administered this year. They actually inoculate the chicken embryo egg with live embryos growing in the egg with porcine virus, which is taken by swab from some pig somewhere in China, and then they make this soup. <laughs> I don't want this. I don't want the immunosuppression soup. It's dangerous enough out there. God knows what you could run into without forcing it into your system through an inoculation. Let's let's assume for a moment that the, the the flu vaccine is effective. But if you're if you're uh, cultivating it in a chicken egg, isn't the vaccine mutating? Isn't the vaccine mutating inside the chicken egg? The vaccine is uh, it, you've got a mixing bag uh, in that chicken embryo egg. You're right. Not so the vaccine. Gonna, I'm sorry. I meant the flu virus would va- would yeah. Would mutate. The, that the vaccine virus is going to be in a brewery in the chicken egg. That's correct. So it's going to mutate. It has to mutate. In fact, the CDC says, okay, it's a mutated virus from the vaccine. That's what's killing people. That's what's, I mean, that's, that's why people are getting so much flu. So it's, it's, it's in there. It's mixing with a chicken flu virus. It's mixing with other pathogens. And yes, it has mutated in there. Uh, so you've got part pig, part chicken virus. And then you want to make another mixing bag. You inject it in a human. It starts festering and, you know, fermenting in there. I mean, it's said, it's said I don't know if it's true or not. I'm, what I'm telling you is true. But it's said that the U.S. president's wife blocked anybody from getting the vaccine because she doesn't want shedding to occur on her child. And actually, that's a very real issue. Hmm. You, can, you cannot get the vaccine, but there are cases on record. There was a woman who's whose extended family all got vaccinated. She, they got sick, but they survived. And she was caretaking for them, caretaking. She suddenly got sick and died. So, you know, the mutated virus, if it gets then into a human and then mutates in a human and picks up human genes, that's when you can have the big pandemic. You can't diagnose that one. So you might say they die from something else, but you can't pick up the mutation anyway. Right, right. I guess my point was, though, that if, if the, uh, the, the, the vaccine is intended for one particular strain, let's say it's the H3N2, uh, but then it mutates. So by the time you take the flu shot, you're not being protected against the, this year's seasonal flu virus. because well, that's it's, it's well established that yeah. there might be 50, 60 mutations during the flu season. Mm. It's silly to think that the flu shot. But it's even, you know what the sillier thing is? To expect that if you inject a bit of formaldehyde, mercurial compounds, thimerosal, aluminum salt, squalene, aspartame, pork gelatin, pork uh, H3N2, chicken virus, 
and some dog genes from growing it on dog kidney cells and fetal embryonic cells, therefore a little cannibalism by injection. It's a bit silly to think that injecting that's going to do anything for anybody. You know, I've been on the planet a long time in the medical field for 30 years. I've never recommended a flu vaccine to anybody in the world. And everybody knows who meets me in Toronto that I'm a strong, healthy guy, despite some of the things I've gone through, you know, picking up the Lyme disease in the woods and all that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody. Although I don't think what I'm saying might not be going to hurt me, you know. <laughs> well, listen, we've we'll, we got to take a time out, uh, Cass. Well, listen, for those that, that uh, choose to take the flu vaccine, that is your uh, your option. If you're looking, though, for alternatives, uh, we'll talk a little uh, wild oregano. Not just for the flu, for a lot of different things. We'll find out what the protocol is and how it works. Oil of oregano. It's in the Bible, folks. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Cass Ingram. The cure is in the cupboard right here on The Conspiracy Show. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Dr. Cass Ingram is with us. The cure is in the cupboard. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That's Psalms 51, chapter 51, verse 7. Hyssop, that's oregano oil, isn't it, Dr. Cass? Yes, and they used to do that, by the way, with the oregano, or we call it that in England, oregano oil. They used to emulsify it into the olive oil and and scrub it on the skin. The ancient Greeks, there was a cargo ship uh, in Chios that they uncovered. It was, I don't know, 500 B.C., and it had 2,000 amphora of uh, oil of, uh, of olive oil with, oil of, with the oil of oregano in there. And and this was the habit of the ancient Greek was to to scrub this all over the body, uh, so so you would be clean of microbes is basically what that means, and so so yes, if we want to to do something productive for our children or our elderly or our vulnerable people or ourselves for uh, combating the flu, and it's it's a real concern if you know if you got into a, a bad condition and and then you get hospitalized nobody wants it and then you get uh you get uh, inhaling inhalers given to you steroidal drugs antibiotics tubes ivs scary stuff um that you'd want to avoid that and you could avoid that with with natural remedies you don't need to get the shot this, this is the option I mean, there's probably no way on earth that if you took advantage of oil of wild oregano, that you know you're just not going to get the flu in the first place. But you could also use it to treat it. It's basically a go home and get rest and drink chicken soup disease. You see, mm-hmm. so we're not saying anything against the medical profession to say that if that happens to you, you need to find out my top three home remedies. Number one is the wild oregano oil. And so how, how, what's the protocol? I mean, how do you, um, uh, how do you, how do you take it? 
to treat, well, to treat the flu or prevent the flu. I don't want people to not get the results. So I will say that what I use is the Oreganol P73, which is the original oil of oregano, the one that has been tested against the flu virus. And my clinical study, well, not, it's not a clinical study. It was an in vitro study. It's an important one. I'll get to that. But So if I could take the P73, let's say I had a bad case of the flu strike me or I had some kind of feverish illness, malaise and prostration, I'm really sick. I'm, it's obviously already through my system. I'm going to take the oregano and I'm going to pound it. I'm going to take a dropper full every hour. Under the tongue? A dropper full, yes, 40 drops. 40 I'm drops. going to do that. 40 drops under the tongue, or can you dilute it in water? Under the tongue. If you want to dilute it, dilute it. If you want to put it in juice or water, I don't care how you get it down. Under the it, tongue is the best. Okay, because it kind of burns, right? It burns like mad. <laughs> yeah. But under the tongue, the, the, at least the P73 only burns temporarily. It doesn't have that tinny, obs, you know, obnoxious uh, element of some of the more, should I say, copycat types. But, but you would take that, or you could cut the dose in half, 20 drops, frequently minimum every hour if you want to speed things up and say i got work to do i don't have time for this i don't want to potentially get hospitalized take it every half hour Mm -hmm. Uh, if you you can take it as gel caps every hour every half hour you then take it and scrub it the old ancient greek technique on the bottom of the feet the top of the shins up and down the uh, thigh top uh, up and down the spine, and also take some and put it right over the top of the clavicle where the two lymphatic ducts dump. Mm-hmm. Hold it there, rub it there. Uh, you will get over. You you wouldn't even need the garlic soup or the raw honey or the vinegar or the elderberry. Those are great things. But if you just had the oil of oregano, maybe the gel caps, you'd pound it out. Now, if it was an extreme case, we've seen some extreme cases, and I've treated them this year, then you, you, you would use this oregoresp. And I don't say treatment like I'm going to treat everybody in the world, but people email me, and I try to help them out. They're sick with the flu. And uh, so that multiple spice oregoresp, they, they would take that also frequently. You say multiple spice, so it's not just oregano. What else is in there? Uh, cumin, which cumin. is great. Ah, we have yeah. we actually great science on the powers of cumin oil, and I'll get to that. Cinnamon oil, mm-hmm. and I believe sage, those four together with the oregano oil. Now, now, I mentioned the science. I've done some pretty good work at Georgetown University, which we published with Harry Pruce, demonstrating that of all the different essential oils, the four or five most powerful for killing germs, whether bacteria or viruses or mold, are oil of oregano, which was number one. Number two was cumin. And they used to use cumin, of course, to prevent meat from soiling or spoiling, therefore the cumin and chili routine. Right. And, and cumin uh, and is then in the curry, third curry one when you was, get what's that when you buy it like a curry dish that's cumin right yeah, there's a lot of cu- cumin and curry and there's a lot of cumin in the recipes of the orient yes mm. then you have the cinnamon uh, and then sage and allspice those are the most powerful germicidal essential oils they do kill all pathogens. And what the beauty of this is, you mentioned Rappaport, you mentioned uh, the British Medical Journal, is sometimes you don't know what you have. 
you think it's the flu and you're treating it with antivirals or you're treating it with supportive care, but it happens to be some kind of suppressive sepsis that's brewing and just starting, a strep or a staph or some other, mm-hmm. and then that runs through your body. So it could be bacterial. Or it could be fungal. This is the big one that they're missing with the weather changes. There are many cases of people who have mold and fungal infections that are mimicking the flu, that are getting the bronchitis, they're getting the sinusitis, they're getting the chest pressure, they're getting the pneumonia symptoms, but it's actually fungal. Ah. You see? And if that's the case, then the antibiotics, the Tamiflu, the flu vaccine will worsen the condition and the patient could succumb. Whereas if we took the spice oils, they are antifungal. One study... Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one study demonstrated that the oil of wild oregano melts the fungal spores and melts the membrane of the candida and other fungus. So they just, they, it kills it, you see? Amazing. It obliterate. I, I don't know if this is in the book, but I was just thinking, you know, because I was talking about hyssop in the Bible... Um, because they, they also mention, along with hyssop, you know, frankincense and myrrh. And are those, have you studied those as well? Well, there have been other investigators, and frankincense and myrrh are a little bit more towards topical. Some, they can be taken in small quantities internally, but they are germicides, however, not as powerful as, as oregano oil. And then they, you look at the Bible specifically and only mentions as a purging agent uh, Aesop, which comes from the Hebrew Esop, which means wild oregano. Mm. So it's the kingpin. Now your Quran comes in and says honey is a medicine for all mankind, and we know that honey is a big germicide. So I mentioned my top three as far as when people are sick with winter illnesses, it's going to be the oil of wild oregano, second, um, potentially multiple spice supplement based on the data demonstrating the cumin, you know, sage, oregano, cinnamon, which, is, which, which that is available in a supplement, and then the raw honey. If we just used those three, now if we want to support that, we can do a cider vinegar, we can do some citrus juice freshly squeezed, we can do some squeezed lemons, because the vitamin C is very, you know, very productive, mm-hmm. very helpful. We might do a bit of elderberry, but right. I'm not going to take a risk. I'm telling you this. I'm not going to rely on orange juice, lemon juice, and elderberry. If I've got a full-blown ble- uh, uh, mutated flu, which is almost trying to occur this year, I think we're going to defeat that, though. You know, the kind of 1918-type syndrome. I hope so. Yeah. Um, it's not going to quite happen, okay? Not that it couldn't happen. Right. It happened before. Why Why wild oregano? What, like, I can't just grow the oregano in my garden? And... Yeah, you can't. You, if you, you know, it's not going to produce that much medicine when it grows in uh, that kind of climate. It really grows only in the mountains of the Mediterranean. That, that's the quality material. And so that's extracted and turned into a proper supplement as drops, as capsules. And, and uh, you know, and... I'm very fortunate. I know what to do. You would know what to do if you study the, the books and stuff. If you want to, that's up to you. But, but if, again, if I got sick, I'd be pounding the oil, the oregaris. I'd go ahead and eat the raw honey because it's really good for the gut, especially if you have viral gastroenteritis. Oh, it's great for the throat, too. Um, just oh, fantastic for the throat and yeah. good for pneumonia. Yeah. I'd, be, 
I'd be trying to get some citrus in. I'd be doing the clear broths and soup. And I, I might do a bit of elderberry. might, might not. But uh, I might, I, I would rather actually do the oregano juice. Yeah, now, this is interesting. I, okay. When I was in Turkey, mm-hmm. this is very interesting. Okay, so I'm there with the village chief. Now, the village chief is a doctor, too. You know how it goes, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, he says, why are you interested in oil of oregano? And then, you know, he's saying this in Turkish, of course. He's, he pulls out a bottle, and he says, this is what we use. He's got a Pepsi bottle with a cork in it. And in that Pepsi bottle, he's got a whole case. You know those old wooden cases? Yeah. It's, it's oregano juice, which is really the steam extract. So they, they, they take the steam and condense it, and they drink that. I said, well, what do you use it for? Well, I've been using it, by the way, for pneumonia and flu and cough and congestion and as a supportive to the you know, flu and all that. But oh, we use it for cancer, heart disease, diabetes. I said, what do you want to do, get me killed and come back and say <laughs> the cures, all that stuff? No, can't do that. Yeah. So, I mean, you're not going to get sick from a seasonal illness or die if you had my knowledge base. Now, when we have someone in the house that gets sick and, you know, goes around or whatever, we, I mean, we go after that, we wipe everything down, you know, doorknobs and kitchen counters and bathroom counters and all of that. We just clean, 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 just yeah. to make sure it doesn't come around again. Can you, instead of using, you know, like bleach and all of that, can you use... Use oregano oil. You can use that to clean as well? Put it in with a little light soap. And a few drops, or use the spray. There's the spray, uh, uh, Germacleanse, I think it's called, out there. Mm-hmm. You can buy that, and you mist that in the air. I actually tested that raw material. That's cumin, oregano, and, and, and uh, cumin, oregano, and cinnamon. I tested that at Celsius Labs, and it obliterated the germs in the air just by spraying it up towards the ceiling. And then as it drifted down, it killed the germs on the doorknobs and, the, you know, the, the cutting boards and what have you. Uh, it's extremely effective. Celsius Labs, 99.9% destruction of airborne pathogens. So I would hunt that down um, and uh, start, start uh, you know, using that around the house. Like if somebody's sick like a dog and they come to my door or something like that, I spray them with it. <laughs> you know, I, I cook them with the douse them with holy water with oregano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, if as a preventative, let's say you, you know one of the worst places is being on a plane, that terrible mm. air, and you're in close quarters with people hacking and wheezing, or you're on the subway, you're packed into a Dangerous. subway. Uh, if you and I see, I see some people, you know, this time of year they were they wear a surgical mask. Could yeah. you could you spray the inside of a surgical mask with like the um, a mist of the oil of oregano? You could do that. You could put the oil of oregano on a little mister. You could use this germacleanse material. Another one out there, orega spray, about the same stuff. And uh, you could take a little two ounce bottle. Oh, you can't have three ounces, but you can have two ounces. Okay, whatever. Put your two ounce bottle in your in your pocket or bag or something. Take your oil of oregano. And you know what I do with the uh, radiation boys at the airport? I say, just hand check this. I don't ask them. I say, I need this hand checked. Mm -hmm. Use my words. I need this hand. I'm not yelling at them. I need this hand checked. 
so you take your oil of oregano, your germacleanse, what have you, uh, your oregoresp, if you're going to do my kit, and you just have them hand-check that. Uh, and you take your oil of oregano, you take your multiple spice capsules, you use your spray, and, I mean, that's what I do. I'm just not going to rely on something that could be weak, especially when you're dealing with the airplane, TB and maybe some kind of flu. I don't think I'm going to wear the mask, though. Right, know. right. Um, now, you know, we, we've got some mild weather up here right now, but, you know, we'll probably get slammed again. And, you know, people yeah. go out in the cold. I, a couple of weeks ago, we had a cold spell, and I was outside. I, w- I shoveled the driveway four times in one day just so it didn't oh get, you know, too heavy. And, uh, you know, I was out there back and forth all the time, and I, one time I didn't go out there with my mitts. I didn't, you know, I didn't get, it wasn't too bad, but my hands were cold. Now, I'm seeing in the book Frostbite and Frostburn. Yes, it's very good for that. Yes, if you took the oil of oregano because it increases the microcirculation and rubbed it on the hands and then put your gloves on, or if you, yeah, if you got the frostburn, you'd still put it on. Mm-hmm. We've treated a couple cases of gangrene, and the gangrene's recovered. That's Seriously. pretty impossible. I mean, wow. they didn't lose their toes. Um, so, I mean, I think the Bible's correct in saying that it's a purge, because there doesn't seem to be too much when it comes to emergency medicine that the oregano can't do. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, what, with the Lyme disease, I'm a miracle case yes, of that. Yes, yes. You were in a wheelchair. Oh, yeah. It was a bad one. And some, ah, how did you get Lyme? Well, I wasn't doing anything. I was just in the woods for a week, okay? I wasn't taking my oregano. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but, doctors are always the worst patients, right? Yeah, I know. Well, I like to do those double-blind studies where I just jump into something <laughs> like a septic soup or a Lyme, you know, tick zone or whatever. I don't know. But, I mean, I just love to the thought that we're putting out there that people could have an alternative. We're not beating up on one way or the other. Right, right. But just like you said, so they know that you could use the honey, you could use oregano, whatever, uh, for these, what we really regard as a minor. You know, most of the time they turn people away from the emergency room. They're dealing with other stuff with cold and flu. Right, right. I want to ask. Cause, yeah, go ahead. I want to ask you about ear uh, ear aches because uh, I remember one time we were over in, uh, in Greece and my one little guy he had a humdinger of a he- uh, uh, an earache. You know, he was in tears. Yeah. And I was trying to do anything, you know, everything I could to to, to pacify him and so forth. And in the middle of the night, and I thought, what do I have? What do I have? I had yeah. the only thing I could think of was I heated up a little bit of olive oil. I warmed it up and I and I took a a, a Q tip and I swabbed it in his ear and. I said, I have no idea if this is going to do anything, but it can't wait. <laughs> so I and, yeah. and lo and behold, uh, after about twenty minutes, the uh, the pain subsided, and then I figured it. I probably what had happened. Maybe there was a bit of water in there, and with the oil in there, it forced the water out. Or uh, what? What? What's that work? Well, there? it's uh, also uh, uh, olive oil has those phenolic compounds right. in it. Right. Yeah. And so it's a sort of a mild germicide. But that's good news, and obviously if we would have had a little bit of the high-grade oil of oregano, we could have maybe bravely put a little of that on the Q-tip. shouldn't have been a problem at all. Rub the inside of the ear, rub the tragus, the soft part, rub around the mastoid process constantly with the oregano and take it down the hatch. In any kind of eustachian tube or mastoiditis or otitis, it's going to take that out. 
the odyssey is you could be right about the water because we now know that fungi and mold are big cause of otitis media. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what else? Um, how about well, um, how about things like um, you know? There's nothing worse in the inside of your mouth than a cold sore. All right. You could still use the oregano for that. You could also use this germaclans and pump some of that into that cold sore, uh, onto the cold sore or the canker sore. You can use the raw honey uh, for that. Uh, and, and one of the best things for canker sores is propolis. Be propolis applied to, if you had a good quality one, uh, to the canker sore or cold sore will, will knock it out uh, quite quickly. But then so will a good quality raw honey. Just keep applying it. Now, we know for sure that oregano oil is extremely anti-herpetic. So that if you had herpes 1 or herpes 2, I've got, I'm writing this book, The Herpes Cure. You can expect me to write that because I now have about 50 cases of genital herpes who I'm following and we're emailing back and forth. I put them on a protocol of about three things. And they're doing very, very well. In some cases, they appear to have eradication, hmm. which is pretty miraculous because it's considered incurable, you know, because that's an intracellular pathogen at that point, right? Ah, okay. Listen, uh, we've got to take a time out, Cass. When we come back, uh, I know we, we talked about, uh, you know, it's antibacterial, antifungal. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out whether it's also antiparasitic. You know, people have things like ringworms and so forth. The cure is in the cupboard, the most ancient medicine of all. How to use wild oregano for better health. Dr. Cass Ingram is here. The book is fully revised and expanded. Back with more in a moment on The Conspiracy Show. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Good friend, Dr. Cass Ingram is uh, back with us. And uh, The Cure is in the Cupboard, which came out early 2000s, and uh, he's revised it and expanded it. Uh, and there's also a, um, an audio a CD you can get as well. If you don't want to read it, you can get the CD. Uh, now, oh, I was going to ask you about um, anti-parasitic uh, qualities, because right. um, you know, people so, get things like uh, ringworm. Oil or they- of oregano mm-hmm. is uh, fairly good for, uh, for protozoans, so the amoeba or amoebic dysentery or amoebic colitis. It's really, 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 really good for as drops under the tongue. And then for Giardia and Cryptosporidium, uh, some kind of pinworm-type things in children, and certainly parasites in dogs and cats. But as far as the big ones, like tapeworm and roundworm and such odd, sometimes you need bigger guns Hmm. or alternatives. So you might more go with the multiple spice-type approach with cumin and cinnamon and sage, because sage and cumin are also antiparasitic. So I would, if I had parasitic, I would, I would, I would do this oregoresp and the oil of oregano maybe as a one-two punch. I would also rub the oil of oregano all over the abdomen because, you know, that's where they're housed. Uh, 
so that's kind of an option that you could you could try that. And sometimes you need to to move in with some black walnut, some of the other artemisia, some of the other antiparasitics. Yeah, I use actually myself. I use the to- for patients and clients. I use the total body purge. I just have them drink two ounces a day for a month, and that usually knocks everything out. The side effect is they usually lose about 15 pounds off the front of their abdomen, you know, when they're all blown up like a balloon. Two, uh, two ounces of oregano oil a day? No, it's two ounces of the total body purge. Oh. That's a liquid muck. Oh. It's mostly Canadian. Canadian nettle, Canadian burdock, Canadian dandelion, dandelion root with spice oils. It's kind of a muck with black seed oil. Another good antiparasitic is black seed oil. That goes back to Pharaoh in mm. the tomb, right? So he had all that stuff, the t- 20 tons of honey and all the black seeds and so on. So they used to use black seed oil as a vermifuge for big cases of worms back in 500 B.C. Wow. Or before that era. It's mentioned in the Bible. It's called curative black seed. The Prophet Muhammad said it cures everything but death. It's <laughs> not too bad. I've just written the book, The Black Seed Miracle, because we found that black seed prevents heart disease, hypertension it reverses, cancer it's anti-tumor, and it helps prevent neurological decline. So that's almost everything. Where is, what is black seed? Well, that's nigella sativa. It's also a spice. It's a, it's a, it's a seed from a flower becomes black when it ripens. They press the oil, and the oil is the most popular form. Uh, uh, you've never tried that. No. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from Turkey. Mostly the good stuff. Some in Egypt also. And they're growing there now on farms. But I should... I've got a, a dozen bottles. I'll send you some. And, uh, and then you could try it for the family and see how you get along. Mm. I've noticed it helps with the elimination. You know, it's prevent people get plugged up. Right. We have some women that are using... There's something called black seed capsules with fennel and cumin. You keep hearing me talk about cumin. Cumin's going to be the new hero in the herbal medicine world. Black seed capsules with fennel and cumin oil, or oil of black seed, uh, and that kind of thing. But... Uh, but you know, you use you and I use the oregano. Yes, P73, oh, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Do, yes. do you, does your family take it like daily or something? No, no. I mean, um, uh, but I told you about um, my one little guy. He um, this is oh maybe seven eight years ago. Uh, he woke up with a. I mean, he was hallucinating. He had his fever was so high. He was hallucinating, and he had that telltale cough, that whooping cough. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, oh, we are in for it now. And so uh, I rubbed that uh, the um, the oregano oil on his shins, and up and down his spine, like you had told me to. Yep. The next day, like the the next morning, not twenty four hours later, like the next morning, not a hint of a cough. I mean, when that's when when it gets to that stage, when you have that cough. That I mean, you're in for it. It usually. could be in a hospitalization or yeah. drugs or misters. Yeah, this is a, it is a miracle. Yeah, no, the, uh, the 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 fever was gone. I mean, we're talking, you know, kids. There, it can be scary, but it's it's natural but too. But you know, you would do well if they got a couple of drops a day in their food. Yeah, especially with the crazy times. That's true. That's true. Uh, and uh, you know, some some of the people want to know well, what would be good daily stuff for children, and I would say it would be the oil and the Oregamax crude herb. The crude herb is just the wild high mountain oregano with a bit of garlic and onion pulverized into a capsule, 
so that that's the ideal form, not strong at all. That you know, in terms of like children, mm-hmm. pets, uh, but particularly children, toddlers, one and a half year old added to the food, one year old. Uh, for pregnant women who want something, they oh, this is no problem with pregnancy and all that. Although oil of oregano, if you get a good quality oil of oregano, 100% wild, low thymol, it's not an issue during pregnancy. Small amount. All right, we'll take one final time out, come back, and uh, continue to delve into the cure in the cupboard. Dr. Cass Ingram, back with more. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Always great to have a visit from Dr. Cass Ingram. The Cure is in the Cupboard. Fully revised, expanded edition, and also available as a, a CD. Uh, I was reading in here, this was surprising to me, uh, and that is uh, root canal. You can avoid root canal. Who doesn't want to avoid root canal? Uh, yeah. How does that, what's the protocol there? Well, that's very important because... Uh, if you get a root canal, then you've got a dead socket and a dead tooth, and that's a foreign body to the body. So that's the last resort, really. And and so use the oregano as a, as a root canal uh, as a alternative. You just take the oil, you saturate a bit of cotton, you've got the tooth involved there, and you stuff it up against gum and cheek and leave it there overnight. Or you can just keep applying it over and over and over again to kill that infection zone, so that maybe you can retain the tooth. Now, some people have to get the tooth pulled if it's really, you know, mm-hmm. diseased and such odd. But then I would still use the oil of oregano in that process. Um, and you can use the oil of oregano as a dentifrice. Just put it on the toothbrush with your toothpaste, and it'll sterilize the mouth, uh, you know, at least keep the germ count down, help re- reverse the plaque. Ah, you know, interesting. It's, it's good that way. Could you use it as a mouthwash? Uh, yes, you can. You can take it with a bit of salt water, shake it up real good, and use it as a mouth rinse. There is actually a great oregano-slash-sage-based mouthwash and toothpaste on the market. Hmm. I carry the toothpaste with me. It's in a German-style push-up thing where you push on it and it keeps sucking it up. You stand it on the counter. And I think it's called Oregafresh. Uh, no, uh, yeah, Oregafresh, and then the mouthwash, I don't remember the name, but they're both Orega-based products. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you about hearing loss, because um, I was reading where, you know, a lot of hearing loss is just is middle ear infection. That's and, true. And, uh, I mean, is that is that also for the elderly, too, or is that mainly for younger people? No, it can be, even with the elderly, like, you know, where, and there can be lymphatic congestion, and... Uh, the the inner ear can be attacked. I've had a couple cases. I published one in my book where the hearing came back through oil of oregano, and they were actually putting it in their ear. Now I don't know if that's really medically indicated, but uh, certainly you can take the Q-tip and rub it on the inner ear. You can rub it on the tragus and and so on. 
take it under the tongue would be probably just as effective. I would give it a go and decongest the area at least. And um, I would think it would help in most cases. There are other things. You can be deficient in B-complex with hearing loss. You can have... uh, Oh, circulation problems, heavy metal poisoning, lots of possibilities there. But viral infection of the auditory nerve is possible. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, we're not thinking about this right now, but spring is just around the corner. And with the spring uh, and the summer come the wasps and the bees and the spiders. Oh, well, the oil of oregano is king there. Yeah. If you can have a bottle of the super strength around and maybe the spray we talked about. And if you did get hit with a hornet or a wasp or a bee or... Uh, then you just saturate that area repeatedly or poison ivy, any kind of venom or toxin, keep saturating. For that matter, if you eat a venom or poison, I mean by that, if you have an allergy reaction or you eat a peanut and you're allergic, or if you have an anaphylaxis or if you eat a GMO, number one cause of anaphylaxis right now is genetically engineered food. It's poison. You know I have a new book on that, another topic. But you eat that, you get shock reaction, your throat closes off, you don't know what to do, your tongue swells. Now you hear it from me. You need the oil of oregano under the tongue immediately. Case history myself. I'm deathly allergic to celery. I'm in Canada. My good friend, you know, from the Raptors, Rory Mullins, a nice guy. He, gets, he brings me a huge glass and says, Doc, you're seeing too many clients and helping too many people. You're dehydrated. Drink this. Uh-oh. I drink it, and I, my throat closes off. It was a glass of celery juice. I didn't, I didn't know you could be allergic to celery. It's 90% water, 99% water. I know, but it has this toxin in it. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, it's a furocumarin. It can be poisonous. So, so I take the oil of oregano. I, I couldn't talk. I said, <laughs> He brings it over to me, and I drank half the bottle, and I, I saved my own life. <laughs> Do you normally have, like, an EpiPen for that? No, I never knew I could. Who's going to drink a half a glass of celery <laughs> juice? <laughs> you know? My um, but I have had to do with other patients who've had reactions, and before they ended up in the ER, we were able to shut it down with the oregano oil. You mentioned GMO. Is, is, is GMO tainting oregano? GMO, the problem with GMO, is is it changing the oregano business, you say? Yeah, I mean, is it, is it now, are there, are, is it contaminating, yes, is it contaminating? I uh, don't know how, it's hard to pin it down, because the GMO boys are going underground, they're not telling everybody now. Uh, but I was contacted by some genetic engineers in 1999, they said, look, Ingram, Mr. Oregano, we need you to promote our new product. We're biogenetically engineering oregano, rosemary, and sage here at the university. This was on the East Coast. I won't reveal where. And uh, so, so get on board and help us promote it. Now, I never even responded to it. But I started to analyze, you know, gas chromatographies of oreganos because people would say, well, it's not working, or I had a reaction. And I'm finding some suspicious things. Now, North American Urban Spice. First of all, you're okay with that, the oregano people. They still have their own extraction overseas. They picked the wild oregano and extracted. So we looked at their gas chromatography, and they had 33 active ingredients in the gas chromatography of the oregano oil. You got my drift? Yeah. 
I found four brands on the Canadian market that only had five or six active ingredients. How do you have five or six active ingredients when there's 33 in nature? Mm. We haven't been able to prove it. But I was, the Israelis, when I went to the conference in Turkey, said we're genetically engineering oregano, and the United States said we're genetically engineering oregano, but nobody can prove it. Um, <laughs> I want four. Here's what they're doing. They're taking the oregano stalks, you know, like in a greenhouse, mm -hmm. injecting it with pseudomonas, genetically engineered pseudomonas, to make it make more carvacrol. And then they're claiming... Oh, we have 90% carvacrol, but there's no 90% carvacrol in nature. This is the problem we're dealing with. Hmm. The carvacrol can only be at the maximum 84% or so. So anything that claims to be, you know, 88% is a hoax. That's all. You know, forget it. Don't take it. 90%, uh, no way. What about things like, I, I'm seeing a lot of commercials now for treatments for psoriasis. I mean, that, I feel for these people. Uh, oh, the psoriasis is terrible. Yeah. Now, I had that, you know, when I had that immunosuppression problem years ago, when I got the IV needle stick, when we discovered the oil of oregano. But the oil of oregano didn't cure it for me. You know what cured my psoriasis? Chaga. Chaga, right. From the birch bark. The wild chaga. These poor people. I'm going to have to write a book on the psoriasis, I guess. But it's in, it's in the cures in the forest anyway. The, 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 the wild chaga, in a raw form, will take out psoriasis without anything else in most cases. As a topical? Well, what I do with people, I say, get some chog o power drops. Chog-o power drops, okay? Get some chaga capsules, Chaga Max capsules, because it's raw. Take six capsules or more a day. Take the drops under the tongue, and if you want, it's messy, saturate a telfa pad and tape the drops against the lesion. That's what I did. Mm -hmm. I, you know how difficult it was for me to speak about health and have a psoriasis patch on my elbow. Right, right. Somebody saw it once and said, hey, if you're so healthy, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> so. Right. Now explain so, what chaga is. Chaga is the gnarly, knobby growth on birch trees found in the far north, which is in the kind of a mushroom family, but it's hard, and it's a, what we call a sterile conch. It's eating the, the sap of the birch, and it's producing itself all this oxygen, superoxide dismutase, producing catalase, producing beta-glucan, producing rare trace minerals, geranium, rubidium, cesium. And God knows, nobody knows, but we think it's those rare trace minerals along with the betulinic acid and the beta-glucan. And it's got melanin in it, you see? So chaga is really good for skin diseases, vitiligo. And it's only on it's only on the birch tree. Only on the birch tree. What is it like? Almost like scar tissue for trees. I mean, if the tree gets scarred, or if it gets damaged, or if it loses a big branch and it's got a scar, the chaga will come in there. Right. Right. Almost like a band aid in that sense. Mm -hmm. But it's an odd thing that if the if the tree dies, the chaga dies. It's not like a fungus. You know, the fungus will keep living. Right. Right. If the chaga dies, 
if you if you scrape off all the chaga too aggressively, you can kill the tree. Hmm. See, so it's kind of a symbiotic relationship. But the Native Americans were so kind to me when I went up to see them in Flin Fon, and I started this whole chaga revolution. But it was thanks to those brothers. So I saw the Aboriginal people. I bought a bunch of stuff from them, and they said, "Well, why don't you talk to me about chaga? We have some. We pick it." And and I well, I don't know anything about it. This was like ten years ago. You never heard of chaga back then, did you? No, no. So he, oh well, we use it to cure cancer. I said, "Do you want to get me put in jail?" <laughs> so I bought it all from him, and then about four or five years later, I said, "You know, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I don't feel like writing books anymore. I don't feel like doing anything. I'm dead, and I can't even stand being in front of a computer." I'm going to try this chaga, which my native brothers said. So I made a tea. I ground it up with birch bark, just intuitively. And then I made the drops, which are now on the market. Thank God for the good people at North American. And and you know what? Uh, I woke up the next morning at 5 in the morning, and I was looking for stuff to do around my house. So I cleaned my closet. I've been wanting to do it for about four years. At 5 in the morning. <laughs> Yeah, I call it my get more done tonic. All uh, right, get more, chaga. Get out more out of Dr. Casting and squeeze him. <laughs> well, we've squeezed all the time we can out of the uh, the show, cast. We're out of time. But again, it's The Cure is in the cupboard. It's the revised, expanded edition and uh, the CD, the audio you CDs. You want a website so people yeah. can look at what this stuff looks like? Yes. www.americanwildfoods.com americanwildfoods.com Have a look. Hey, Study it. Look into it, people. You know. All right. Thanks, Dr. Cass. Bye-bye. Until next time. All right. My thanks to Ian, Albert, and Ryan. Back next week with uh, Kevin Estrella, Pyramids on Mars. And uh, we'll also talk to a, a medical intuitive and uh, evidential uh, medium. We'll find out what that means as well. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.